stand now for Psalm 73. We conclude our series on the Psalms with this magnificent psalm. I'm just going to read the first three verses, but I I ask you, uh, if you have a Bible, please, please hold it open as we will walk through the rest of the passage uh, this morning. Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Would you be seated? Have you been, at one time or now, disillusioned with God? Maybe you're hurt and you call out to him and he's silent. And meanwhile, you look around and those who are far from God are doing quite well. Thank you. Our author this morning felt that, experienced that. He was a righteous man. He was the friend of kings. He was a musician. His music was so good that it was sung in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. His music, his songs were so important that they became scripture. He wrote more scripture than many of the Old Testament prophets, Jonah, Micah. In fact, he wrote more scripture than the apostle Peter. Who is this man? Asaph. You heard from him, and we'll hear from him the rest of Psalm 73. You get to heaven one day. You're walking around. Asaph bunts into you. How'd you like my stuff? What are you going to say? At least you'll be saying, well, I know Psalm 73 at least. I like that one. So we're going to hear from Asaph this morning. Asaph starts off. He says this. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Our first mountaintop, our peak this morning of truth, God is good to the pure in heart. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel? Maybe you're one who's, God is good all the time. Yes, there's a truth. I love it. I'm happy. It's good. Or... For some, that that may have felt like a punch in the gut. God's good to the pure. I don't feel that right now. I don't feel that. And this is is a confession coming in a sense from a a recovering pessimist, a, a glass half empty guy. If you're one of those like me who's recovering, being restored, this message is for you and for me. Because I'm headed uh, away from that, repenting, changing, recovering from being that. The big idea here for us, brothers and sisters, is this. Life is hard. The best place we can be is as close to God as possible and to seek, to feel that. This is a feeling sermon. 
We've got logos, which is word, and we've got pathos, which is feeling. Asaph wants us to feel this. So is that big idea true? Life's hard, best place, be close to God. Each, each day I get a, an email from the New York Times where it gives the, the highlights in the news. So you can check them quickly and they'll say, here's the latest in politics, sports, world events, cooking, everything. Boom, in a snapshot like that. But when they focus in on a lot of the events, especially in politics, they'll say, and we did some fact-checking. You know, that's a big term now in politics, fact-checking. And so the reporters did some fact-checking. Interesting thing, I mean, when you think about it, the reporters who are doing it, they're the same ones who say there is no absolute truth. So what facts are you checking? I don't know, a little bit of a dilemma there. But Asaph, this morning, he says, here's truth, but I'm going to do some fact-checking. I had to, because he says, but as for me, but as for me... Underline that in the passage because that's going to bookend this passage. He says, I'm on the peak over here. Here's truth. God is good. But I'm going to have to descend into quite a valley in order to get over to this other peak of experience and of feeling. And Asaph is one who... If you're one of those ones who likes to share a story, to hear somebody's story and, and to, to engage in that, he is one for you. Because as he says, he says, my feet, here's my story, my feet almost slipped. And when I think of that, I think of a deadly <laughs> knife's edge chasm. Our friend here is going to drop his water bottle, oops, thousands and thousands of feet down. So we'll get a picture here of this knife's edge, and you see this is dangerous. That is what it looks like, straight down, thousands of feet on either side. Deadly. My feet almost slipped. Now here's the thing. That's what comes to mind. But for Asaph, it was actually a little bit different, or actually quite a bit different. It wasn't a chasm falling thousands of feet it was a slippery slope. In this sense, it was a nice, gentle descent, slightly going down. But in the end, it gets to the same dangerous place. A little bit misconception, a little bit of sin, more sin, and so forth. Kind of like the frog in the kettle gradually heating the water up. It becomes deadly. So what, what was the deal for Asaph? Why did he start? Why did his feet nearly slip on this slippery slope? His assumption was this in life. The wicked, they should get punished. The righteous, they should be rewarded. Is that okay? Yes, that's actually quite good. That's biblical. That's scriptural. That's even close to the heart of God. Wicked, punished, righteous, rewarded. Okay, so what happened with him? He said, but I see the wicked mocking you, God. And I don't see it from afar. I see it up close. Asaph's brother was Zechariah. Zechariah, his own brother, was murdered in the temple by the king's henchmen. 
The king Solomon. Whoa. When Solomon had gone astray, at some point his own henchmen kill Asaph's brother, Zechariah. Talk about a church scandal. Talk about having to deal with evil called good, good called evil. Asaph is seeing this wickedness, and the wicked are prospering. Welcome to America, in some sense. As Hunter mentioned, signed into in New York, Governor Cuomo signs for abortion through the third trimester. Our scripture here says, is there knowledge in the Most High? The reaction to this was cheering, rising in applause. Is there a better picture, a a worse picture of calling evil good and good evil? So Asaph sees this as we see this. Asaph's wanting justice So why did his feet almost slip? As it says in verse 2, his feet almost slipped. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, the verses prior to that are him progressing and seeing. The wicked do this, they do this, nothing's happening. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What good is it? His good desire for justice and blessing now gets morphed into a covetous demand. Good desire becomes covetous demand. As we say maybe, I have lived right. Why is my health suffering? I've been a good husband and wife. Why do I get treated this way by my spouse? What is the point in living a right way when the ones who mock God get a better life? I deserve, I demand what? Coveting is listed 10th of the Ten Commandments. Not because it's the least important last very likely because it is a summary, an internalization of the ones that went before. We can't see coveting. We can hide it. I want this, stealing in my heart. I desire this more, breaking the first commandment and having another God. Coveting internalizes those. Colossians 3 says, coveting is idolatry. It's saying, I must have blank, and we need to answer that. What is the blank that I desire and demand in the place of God? Coveting, in a sense, is the opposite of contentment. Watson says, Thomas Watson says, discontent makes a breach in the soul. Being discontent makes a breach in the soul. At this breach, the devil enters in with temptation and storms the soul. A little bit of covenant, a breach in the soul. We see here a picture 
if you can kind of see that. Christian, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, progressing from or to uh, the celestial city, he ends up in the valley. And there he is attacked by Apollyon, the devil, as Christian has wrestled through, not being content and satisfied in what he has been told to do on his journey. And the devil storms his soul. Socrates, by no means a Christian, said, The unexamined life is not worth living. And Jesus at one point pointed out that sometimes the unbeliever is more shrewd than the believer, and it should not be that way. So we have Socrates saying we should examine our lives. Christian, brother and sister, we should examine our lives say, where is the gap? Where is the breach that I'm not content that the devil can step in and take and storm through? Contentment forms a wall against that breach, against that chasm. It says, Paul said, in whatever state I'm in, I am content. Whatever state I'm in, I give thanks. Our friend Asaph, what changed for him? What changed where he was on the slippery slope headed down? The climax, in a sense, or the turning point of the book comes in verse 17. So if we look here at the the next slide, the, the, the climax comes when he goes into the sanctuary. Okay, in verse 17 it says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Okay, the sanctuary What does that mean that he went into the sanctuary? Was it one time? Was it many times? We don't know. Was it corporate worship? Was this where they gathered and he went in there and there was something powerful that happened in corporate worship? Maybe. Nowadays in in the Christian church, we, we often downplay the importance of corporate worship too much. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe it was private. After all, he's a Levite, he's a priest, he probably had a key, so he could have gone in there by himself, and maybe there was a powerful worship experience he had there. Maybe the sanctuary is just figurative, and he met with God at home. We don't know, but something happened, and something changed, and he was headed in a different path. Hold on to that for just a minute. The thing that changed for him was, notice prior to this, he speaks about God in the third person. Now he will speak to God directly. He becomes you, 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 God. And there are two things that happen that change his path. The first is this. When he comes out of the sanctuary, when he has that experience, he says, Of the wicked, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The wicked are swept away. Now, we don't like to hear much about this. But here's the question. And we won't major on this because we're going to major on the majors in this passage. But it is pointed out in here for sure. God is the God of wrath. True or false? 
True or false? Let's just pick a passage in the Bible in addition to what we see here in Psalm 73. Revelation. Let's go to Revelation for a minute. Revelation 6. In Sunday school, coming in the fall, we're going to go through Revelation. So we'll see something like this. Revelation 6, famous passage about the four horsemen. The white rider, the pale rider, the red rider. They go out. What do they do? They spread wrath on the people who deserve it. On the people who deserve it. Our God, brothers and sisters, is a God of grace. Yes, 100%. Our God is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God of justice. And our God is a God who must have wrath on those who rebel against him. And that Asaph saw. He saw this is the path that the wicked are on. It might not be right now, but that is where they are headed. Eventually, they will get theirs. Now, Asaph didn't say, stay there and say, well, I'm just going to cast stones at them now. This is what you guys are getting. He realizes his own sin. In verse 21, Asaph says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. That is confession of sin. He is saying, yep, that's where the wicked are going, but look, here is where I am. And Lord God, I confess that to you. After that, where does he go? Verse 23. Look at this verse. Powerful verse. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So we said this is, this is about feeling. I was talking with a friend just this week. Sharing, sharing how... I feel like relationship with God is, is a one-way street. I'm talking. I'm not feeling. He's not hearing. And you've likely felt that way yourself. We all do, likely, at one point or another. But this verse is saying, you know those times I'm, 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 I'm looking for God, I'm trying to feel him, and you're telling me you're, he's holding my hand? And I don't feel it. But this is where we trust God's word over those feelings. Because his word says, I am holding your hand, believer. Your hand might be so numb from pain, but I am holding your, your, I am holding your hand. Trust me. Trust me. The feeling will come later. The child, I don't feel like you love me. Parent, I do, and you must trust me. Now, we do need to consider this with that relationship. Relationship and righteousness, in a sense, go hand in hand. And there are times in our lives where we might not feel the closeness of God. And it is the fair and right question to say, is there sin in your life that is causing the breach, that is causing the lack of relationship. 
That is a fair and good question in the right time and place. But, you know the trite saying that says, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? There are times that that little trite saying needs to be thrown in the trash is the best place for it. Because there are plenty of times where God's holding our hand because he promised, but we don't feel it because he has in some way, look at Job, he's withdrawn in some way for our good. He's still sovereignly there. We don't feel it. He's using it for good and it's not our sin. That's scripture and we need to trust and rely on that. So our friend Asaph, there are two things that rescue him. One, realizing the path of the wicked. But also there's something better that's pulling him forward. And look now at his prayer. One of the most powerful prayers in scripture. If you look basically uh, as he goes through verses 23 and following. In Jesus In the Lord's Prayer, and we prayed it earlier, he gives us uh, that prayer, sometimes to pray directly, but more than that is a model. Because in the Lord's Prayer, we see a model of how we're supposed to do things in prayer. Adoration, things like that. Things like confession, things like thanksgiving, things like supplication. And we see that in this passage. Now, we need to be careful. We don't come and say, oh, Jesus, your prayers and this prayer needs to fit this model of Acts. That's not scriptural. It's a helpful aid, though, that is, is often useful to say, don't just come to God and say, gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, we're peers. No, it's saying you adore you adore, you revere your father, as, as Asaph does here. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Adoration. He's, he's confessed his sin that I was like a brute. There's thanksgiving that God is holding him and sustaining him. Interesting thing is there's supplication here. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, this is where we be careful about just slapping a model on it. But maybe the supplication is, you're holding me, keep holding me, I can't make it without you. But he gives us one of the most powerful prayers there in Scripture. And he takes us to verse 26, to one of the most powerful testimonies. You can see I use a lot of superlatives here, because this is so good. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And our good friend Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings, when he's at the gates of Mordor, and he says to his men, and he's borrowing, stealing, morphing, whatever, Psalm 73, 26, he says, I see in your eyes a fear that could take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men may fail, when we forsake our friends and break all bounds of fellowship. But, fill in the blank, it is not this day. Because he says, my heart's weak, my heart's struggling, 
but I'm going to rely on you, whatever the goodness is in the Lord of the Rings. Asaph is saying, I'm relying on you, Lord. You've got to sustain me, just as Aragorn claimed. He's saying, God is all I need. So there are two things, Asaph again, he would say, there's the awareness of the fate of the wicked, okay? That helps. And it helps for believer, if you have some besetting sin, to say, I need to don't, shouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't, deter, get away from whatever, that you need to do, yes, that's part of it. But is that going to do it? No. There's got to be something else you put off, but then you put on. God is the best, in effect. And here's where a, a recent author, Bowden, captures this in his book, Rewire Your Heart. Here's what he says. The reason why your fight against sin has been ineffective is because you haven't been fighting sin You've been fighting its fruit. Trying to change your actions without changing your affection is like picking all the apples off of an apple tree and thinking that doing so will turn it into an oak. The reality is that the only way you will do something is if you want to do it, if your wanter is changed. So our good friend Bowden in his book, Rewire Your Heart, is in some sense borrowing From over 200 years ago, Thomas Chalmers wrote of the expulsive power of a new affection. What does that mean? It means, yes, we turn from sin, but there has to be something that entices us, that draws us, that allures us, that's better. you got to give me something better if I'm going to leave this. And that is what Asaph is experiencing here and that is what is there for us. Said it was the, the book ends, right? So, but as for me, I almost slipped. And then he goes to the end. He says, But as for me, but as for me, he's saying, I get I get the the truth. I get it. God is good to Israel to the pure in heart. But now the experience, I'm experiencing it too. And this isn't just a little Pollyanna, happy, 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 happy. And it's not a blind leap of faith. This is where he has gone from one peak to the other because he went through the valley and the Lord brought him through. And now he hungers and he desires and he longs to feel what John Owens called communion. And we don't mean communion as in the Lord's table. We mean communion like closeness, closeness with God. And Owen said this, the love of Christ, being the love of God, is effectual and fruitful in producing all the good things which he wills to his beloved. He loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He's loving it into us. That's communion. He also loves into us covenant. He loves us into Heaven, communion, that is what Asaph is experiencing. That is why this is in Scripture, so that we can feel that too. 
The Wesley brothers, we sang one of their songs earlier, and can it be? John Wesley wrote this. The preacher Wesley wrote this. Reflecting on our verse here that says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. And then his brother, Charles Wesley, reflecting on this psalm as he died with his wife beside him. Author Steve Lawson says this, his final words, another hymn, in age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart, Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? Longing to the end, feeling that communion. And Lawson concludes this. This, this is how to overcome myopic, limited faith. By looking away from even things that are good, but not best. Looking away from the charms of this world and focusing on the glories of Christ. So brothers and sisters, that must be our longing. That Christ would engage, enrapture, enchant us, take us away, pursue us, woo us, steal us, whatever, from these other things such that we're drawn closer in communion with him. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let us pray.